Well, that's uh, our signature tune for the love of money. David Shapiro is a man who's followed money all his life. He joins us now. Just about ready to go off to Australia, Dave. So your your silly season is beginning after, uh, well, pretty much after this week. Yeah, my whole year's silly season when I look after grandchildren. So it's just a matter of which country I'm looking after them. This time it's Australia. <laughs> Goodness me. <laughs> funny, funny that, Dave. In the, in the past we used to talk about the silly season and it just mm. seems mm. as though it's not, it, it, it's fallen out of the parlance now. I guess people are working a little harder today than they did 10, 20 years ago. I think so. I think they have to. And, you know, one of the reasons, certainly in our industry, is that things don't change. Um, the the markets remain open uh, 24 hours a day. You've got to keep tabs of what's happening. So it's uh, it's it's you can't sit back and relax as we used to. And the other thing is that uh, you're on you know you're on internet-based systems or you're on electronic systems. In the past, when we used to deal on the floor, uh, there was always someone to cover your deals. You know you can't do that anymore. Um, I notice there's quite a bit of activity around here. We're in Melrose Arch, and uh, uh, it's made up of mainly restaurants. And so you still see a lot of people in the evenings coming here for a, a drink or a supper or, or so and so. And they've got the lights out here. But what you say is definitely right. The city season is not as uh, is not like it used to be. And the other thing, Alec, we're bringing forward Christmas shopping to this Black Friday. Yeah. So everybody's shopping now at the end of November and, of course, today. And the numbers are staggering. I'm talking on a global concept. You know, even here, we'll start to see the numbers coming through shortly about what was spent. So uh, the December shopping is 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 making way for uh, late November shopping. Well, that's that picture on the front page of the Business Times this week kind of told it all, didn't it? There you had yeah. chock-a-block in midnight at time. Yeah. Quite yeah. amazing. Yeah. David, the, the focus, though, in the business world has been not to do with Black Fridays, but to do with, well, some pretty awful uh, report coming out on Tongot. And there, there seem to be similarities between Steinhoff and Tongot. Yep. How are you reading um, what, we, what we got from PwC on Friday? Uh you, do you, know where, you know what disturbs me more than anything else? Uh, number one, that uh, chaps like Peter Stauder, and I know, Alec, I can't tell you how many times I was in the studio with you, you know, that we used to interview him either from Natal or coming into the studio. He always came across as a confident, competent man. And uh, it, it's very difficult to, to question him or to, um, how would I say, it was the same as Marcus Yuster. They were always in charge, charming kind of people. And yet, why do they have to resort to the kind of tactics that they did? And I think in Peter's place here, you know, I, I was on, I think in an interview with you last time, I, I mentioned that there were certain areas in which they could diddle the numbers. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this comes through as, um, you know, this comes through as, as very, very serious. Uh, transgressions. And, and what's concerning about the report is that in this case, uh, PwC implicates the whole board. Um, you know, they say that there was a cultural deference. No one challenged the accounting practices. And what Peter was doing is particularly in land sale, bringing forward sales. Um, he was doing a lot of trades 
also by uh, overstating shoe sales in uh, Zimbabwe in order to make it, uh, you know, uh, to cover finance deals. So there were a whole lot of uh, uh, things that took place which, which, which are concerned. But the big concern, where's King, where is uh, the auditors? In other words, where the non-executive directors where the auditors, these are things that should be picked up, and that's why they're there. They are gatekeepers. They're there to protect our interests, and we rely on them, and they didn't come through. They haven't come through once again. Well, I guess the one thing in Peter Stader's uh, favor is that the report has said that he didn't steal to put in money into his pocket like no. Marcus Yuster did, but that they did play with the accounting or, or play yep. with the books, if you like, so that the incentives could be achieved exactly. and they could have been paid accordingly. Is there any difference? Um, not really. In both cases, you're, you're misleading uh, people. So, I don't know, there is a big difference. There was no stealing. Okay, but, but what happens is that um, you do uh, – what, what's the word? You know, you do uh, increase the, the sales numbers. You do falsely increase profits. You do bring forward profits that are that or uh, you know that would have come through maybe a year later. So there are all kinds of adjustments that have to be made. But um, he didn't steal, you know, he didn't hide anything from that point of view. But I mean, this was uh, accounting shenanigans, and uh, you know, I, I don't know where the difference lies. And and you know, it's a reckless type of stuff. It's the stuff that you don't have to do, mm. you know. Uh, you don't need to do it. You don't need to put through sales in order to to manipulate your share price. Well, we're going to so, talk. We're going to talk to Chris uh, Logan about that a little later. He's been following the story. In fact, uh, in 2014, he was already warning that they were going in the wrong direction. But something that's been going in the wrong direction, David, and it's almost like a, a movie. Is South African Airways. Uh, on the mm. weekend, we we read the report in Business Times that there had been a report issued to the board some months ago with the previous CEO saying, get government out here, let's do a merger with Ethiopian Airlines, and we actually yeah. could have a sustainable business. But it seems like that fell on deaf ears, and now it, it's just going from bad to worse. How, you have an ear very close to the ground. How are you reading all this? Well, the problem is that um, at the moment they're struggling to pay their staff. So they're not just, first of all, the banks are not, the banks who could provide finance are not coming to the party unless government gives guarantees. Government are drawing the line and saying we can no longer give those guarantees because all it does is weaken our position and make, you know, we're holding on for a, uh, we're trying to hold off a downgrade, but if we continue to, to guarantee these kind of payments, of course, we're going to be downgraded. So they're drawing the line. They know that something has to be done. And now it's a fight. It's going to be a fight between whether government can stand that line or not, or whether the unions are going to completely cripple uh, the airline, as we saw last week. So um, it's coming down to that point. The problem is that uh, we know some pilots, you know, that weren't paid or being paid in stages. When you get to that kind of point, you know, then then you're in real trouble because once the pilots decide not to fly the planes. Then, then, then everything just falls in a heap. So, if the so, government, if the government doesn't give a, a, a guarantee, the banks are not going to lend the money, nah. and they can't pay salaries. Or well, nah. haven't been paying salaries. No, nah. is that what you're saying? Have they I not paid so, salaries? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've 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 heard stories filtering through. That's why I'm saying at this stage, 
uh, we haven't got confirmation, but uh, we certainly know that that some of the pilots have been, you know, there's anecdotal evidence or there's it comes through the friend of a friend kind of thing, you know, where salaries are being delayed. And one needs to investigate whether whether everybody has been paid in full. And that's when you when you get to those stages, you're really juggling the cash book. You know, you're in trouble. Yeah, Dave, so, is mm-hmm. it possible now? Or what's the next? Let's just say the banks say we want a government guarantee. The government says we're not prepared to give you a guarantee, so the banks don't lend. Does it go into business rescue? It must go into business rescue. And business rescue is all you're doing is you're holding off the creditors. <laughs> You're saying to creditors, hold on a sec, we can't pay you. Uh, we're going to delay payment until we can get our cash flows right. But it doesn't solve the problem because at the end of the day, this is a bloated airline with far too many staff and far too many expenses which you have to address. And then you, then when the business rescue people come in, they come in and say, listen, we've got to lay off staff. We've got to consolidate. We've got to become more efficient. Um, maybe that is the route, but I cannot understand why government is taking the third option, which is, uh, you know, is, is, is trying to make something of it. And this is, uh, this is a political move, Alec. Something is not political, but something that, uh, that really caught my attention today was, uh, on SENS, Adrian Gore and his share dealings. Now these numbers are just mind blowing. David, what is going on there? They call options and put options okay. and nearly one and a half billion rand that's involved. <laughs> I'm going to try and explain it in a very, hopefully it comes through as articulate and easy to understand. Where this stems from is that some time ago, Discovery had a rights issue, which I think this was to fund the bank. They needed cash. It's a couple of years ago. I can't remember the exact dates, and I've still got to do the numbers. But Adrian needed money to follow the uh, his, his uh, rights, and therefore he borrows from a bank or he enters into the structured product. So he wants to borrow money. So what the bank says to him, and I think in this case it's probably R&B or someone associated with the group, they say, yes, we will lend you money against the collateral of your shares, but we want protection. In other words, what happens if the share price halves, you know, then the collateral halves, we want protection beyond a certain point. As per Steinhoff, what happened with Steinhoff and, and Christophe similar kind well, of thing. So, so he enters into a Put. He buys a put. What is a put? That gives him a right to sell the shares at a certain point. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if, if you're with me, is that if the share price falls beyond a certain level, he can sell them. You know, he's got protection at that level, and the people who have lent him the money have got protection that the share price, you know, will not fall beyond that point. But it costs him to get that protection. It costs him money. So what does he do on the other leg? He says, okay, in order to pay the premium on the put option that I am buying, in other words, the right to sell, I will sell a call. In other words, allow, you know, I will sell a call to someone, meaning that he sells the right for someone else to buy the shares beyond a certain point. I hope that comes across as so well. So if, if the share price goes above 160 rand, yes. somebody can buy Adrian Gore exactly. out of Discovery. Wow. Exactly. Or buy those 8 million shares. Mm. Okay. okay. But if it falls beyond 80 or 90, he's got the cover. Now, what's happened in this deal, 
this is a restructure. He entered into a deal, obviously, which was making him feel very uncomfortable, and that's why he's restructured it. That's why there's another date, 2016 or something like that. And I think that when those share price, remember the share price fell to uh, around about, fell below 100 rand. I think he was right on the brink of being forced to put those shares. So I think Adrian's been under a bit of pressure. I don't want to speculate in any way. I'm merely reading what's uh, in between the lines. So I think this is a deal that's been restructured and, you know, on, on more favorable terms to help Adrian. But there's no doubt that, you know, he's, he's still got this debt that hangs over him at a very at a much higher price than the share price is trading at now. But it's like, mm. not the first person we've seen enter into the... Remember, Richard Friedland entered into something very similar with Netcare mm. and I think was forced to sell the shares, was forced to you know, exercise the put. And I guess you, you really can't win on this if you're Adrian Gore because if you don't follow your rights in the rights issue, then investors oh. are going to say, well, don't you have confidence? You want us to put more money in, exactly. but where's yours? Wow. Exactly. It's hard and to be a founder, a, isn't it? No, no, it's very, very <laughs> difficult. You know. I, don't, I don't think Adrian's starving. I still think he can afford three meals a day. But I think this is, uh, you know, this comes out of a, I think this is a renegotiating of what was a very uncomfortable position for him. David Shapiro is with Sassman, and that's the last time we're going to be talking to him this year. Coming up in just a moment, we'll have more on the Tongard story with Chris Logan. Oh, Chris Logan joins us now. Chris, good to talk to you. Um, another update on Friday about Tongard. And this is a story that you've been following very closely for a long, long time. Um, I was looking back in, in the research, 2014, there was a story in Business Day where you warned them, you warned the uh, the Tongart guys that they were on the wrong path. Now, I'm sure you remember that piece. What exactly was concerning you then? Yes, thanks, Alec. What was concerning me was, first of all, they were selling off their land holdings, their great coastal land holdings, areas like Amshlonga Ridge, which are one of a kind, and, and taking all that cash and deploying it in sugar capital expenditure, plus more. So they were taking a huge bet on sugar, a ginormous bet, which I thought was reckless. Um, and I think it was a double whammy because even they were on record as saying, Coastal land appreciates by more than inflation in the long term. So you're taking money out of that and putting it into sugar, which is a terribly cyclical um, commodity. And it's probably the worst commodity in the world to invest in because there's no price discipline. Now, by that, I mean, normally when a commodity's price declines, supply drops off. But with sugar, it's different because when prices decline, sugar is generally such an important industry to countries, they give protection or subsidies. So you can get the price declining, but no restriction in supply. Actually, there's periods where the price declines, but supply increases. So it's a horrible commodity. And then, of course, as I said in the article at that stage, you know, there were already all these health concerns um, and all the rest, you know, where World Health Organization was linking sugar with obesity, 
blah, blah, blah. So I thought it was just reckless in the extreme. And no one listened to you back then? No, no one really listened to me. Are they listening now? <laughs> well, unfortunately, you know, we now have a tragedy. Um, we have a company which had all the hallmarks of being a great company because, you know, they just cash card sugar, but that, I mean, you know, their, their yearly investment in new capex was less than depreciation. And they'd been clever with their land holdings. This thing could have been a fantastic company. Now we sit in this horrific situation and I, and I think there's no other way to describe it other than that it's a tragedy. Um, I hear the, the village itself of Tongat is decimated. You know, there's 5,000 retrenchments taking place. People are being kicked out of their houses. Um, huge decimation for the Natal economy. And then, you know, as much as I argued with Peter Stardy, it's a tragedy. He has a very bright guy. I'm sure you know he could be very charming, very persuasive. And look what he's now faced with. What is he faced with, Chris? Is it, is it real that the board will try and get him into jail? Because if they are referring him and the other nine to their National Prosecuting Authority and the South African police, there can only be one intention. Well, you know, I think under the Financial Markets Act, you know, um, if, if you misstate results or make misleading statements, um, it's a criminal offence. Because, and it's a serious offence, if you think it through, people have gone and bought Tongard based on the audited annual financial statements and all the presentation material put out. And have been totally wiped out. So, you know, I don't think we can underestimate what's gone on in, in terms of severity, not just for Tongod, but once again, the equity risk of investing in South Africa has gone up. If you're a foreign investor, you're reading Tongod, you're reading Steinhoff, you're reading EOH, why bother with this market? And as you know, we need investment. Well, why did Peter Stader, you said he's a smart guy. Why did he do this? Why did he take such a clear punt on sugar when the writing was on the wall elsewhere? And, and, and you've seen it now, the way you've articulated it, it and from what the PwC report tells us. It's pretty clear what he was up to. Did he have a view that the sugar price was, was just temporarily low? He had a very strong conviction that the the equilibrium price for sugar in, in the medium to long term was 30 U.S. cents per pound. I think he even tabulated it way back in about 2013 or something in the annual report. And this was the justification for this massive investment into, uh, you know, new sugar production. So... Yeah, I would like to draw a bit of a distinction, if I may, you know, between, say, what went on here and what went on at Steinhoff. I don't want to underestimate the severity of what's been done here. But I think 
the implicated executives, certainly the CEO and the CFO, it wasn't so much personal enrichment. They weren't self-dealing. Yes, they benefited by very large bonuses and remuneration packages. But I think they got on this treadmill of taking this huge bet, which was going against them, and then I think they fell into the trap of jippoing the figures. Um, but you surely know, then, it, then other people have got to be implicated, the internal auditors, KPMG, oh, KPMG, and external auditors, Deloitte, who were also involved with Steinhoff. Surely they must have some culpability. I didn't see their names being mentioned in the PwC report. Well, precisely. And I think, you know, the logical question is, um, you know, where's uh, some information on how the board now believes, um, you know, the, the auditors, both the internal and the external. And, and I think it's broader than that, Alec. Uh, you know, the one thing that this report says, it makes it clear, the, the report's been prepared for litigation by, so litigating against some of the implicated executives, you presume, and against Tongot. They obviously expecting people who've lost their shirt to sue them. So it's a serious situation. And, you know, let's say once the first shareholder goes and lodges claims against Tongart, let's say it's a 2% shareholder, you know, the rest almost feel they've got to jump onto the bandwagon because if the 2% shareholder w wins, then there's less for the rest. So you, you get caught in this catch-22 situation. What does it do with the investability of a stock like Tongot? Well, you know, given this expected litigation, and I mean, I'd love to hear what they've got to say about it, but I think potentially makes the company uninvestable. And until you've answered that, if all, the shareholders who bought this company over the last year or two based on these false statements issue summons, you know, it's, it's going to detract from the NAV of whatever's less and obligation. So it's a terrible situation. I think they need to address that, how they're going to handle that, because they've alluded to it in this report in no uncertain terms. It's a mess. Chris, from your perspective, you, did, you were waving the flag there. Uh, we've also spoken about Huleman, which is a... Uh, I suppose, a sister company of Tongart. Are there others that, that you're concerned about at the moment to other companies listed on the JSE that we should be taking a closer look at? Yeah, we're just touching on Huleman. It's quite interesting because essentially exactly what happened at Tongart happened in Huleman earlier on, this massive capital misallocation. Another one, of course, is NAMPAC, a bluest of the blue chip supplying the likes of SA breweries and look at the capital misallocation there. This company's been decimated. Um, but hang on there, Chris. Uh, now we've got the CEO of NAMPAC, uh, Dorator, who's, who's going to be uh, going off to um, run Eskom, which is a, a, a national issue. Sure. I think somewhat in his defense, the big bets into Nigeria and Angola were taken before he got there. Um, 
And, um, but it's a mess. Not only capital misallocation, they're running a model there. They're the only packaging conglomerate in the world. All these other uh, packaging companies have focused. So it's a total mess. I mean, I'm sure you've seen it five rand. I think we talked about doing something when it was 12 rand and it's fallen like a stone. I think, Alec, what we're seeing, we're seeing a lack of rigor across the board in how companies are managed and operated. And, you know, you can't just blame the boards and the management. At Tongard, the shareholders supported this board and or the previous board and the management. The culpability is widespread. It's systematic. Year in and year out, they voted for misaligned incentives, which targeted sugar production. So Paul Peter was actually incentivized to ramp up sugar production. Chris Logan uh, from Opportune, who blew the whistle, if you like, on Tongot five years ago. Uh, and well, nobody was listening then. They surely are listening now. We're going to be talking in just a moment or getting a feedback in just a moment from the, those two big annual general meetings last week. You might remember we spoke with Tracy Davies last week. She attended both of them, uh, Sassel and at First Strand. She'll give us some feedback. Well, it's a warm welcome to Tracy Davies. We spoke last week. She, of course, is the director of Just Share. And uh, you had a busy week, Tracy, as you were telling us. You were off to the Sassel meeting on Wednesday and then the first round meeting on Thursday. Tell us how it went, first of all, with Sassel. Hi, Alec. Thanks. Yes, it was uh, extremely busy, and it was uh, there were two extremely different AGMs. The Sassel AGM was uh, long and quite uh, noisy <laughs> and full, uh, and the first round AGM quite different. But the Sassel AGM, there were a lot of people there in the room, shareholders, a lot of shareholder activists, and the board had to face a significant uh, period of time during which those uh, activists asked questions about its uh, performance, particularly in relation to climate change and climate risk. Mm. And uh, how did they how did they fare? I mean, look, Sassel was obviously prepared for questions on climate change, uh, and in general, they are better prepared than they were last year. Subsequent um, in, in the interim period, they have released this climate change report, and they've committed to reducing their carbon emissions by ten percent by twenty thirty. Uh, all of which I might add is, is, is significantly down to pressure from civil society and shareholder activists. Um, so they were much better prepared with their responses to challenges on climate change. But in my view, uh, the board and even um, Fleetwood Hobler, the new CEO, are still seeing um, the company's ability to address climate risk as a kind of a trade-off. They're saying, you know, we can't we can't do too much because of our uh, sort of social and economic obligations to our workers and to the South African economy. Um, but that really is missing the point because the point is that if they don't act faster and more dramatically, then it is precisely those workers and our economy that is going to suffer. So I still think that Sassel's operating as if it is in control of the time frame of these issues, but in actual fact, uh, time is moving much faster on climate risk than anyone thought possible, and at the moment their ambitions and targets are simply too weak. You've been at them for a while. After the AGM on Wednesday, do you feel there's been progress? 
Well, Sassel still exerting, uh, or sorry, asserting uh, this view, first of all, that shareholders are not entitled to table resolutions on climate risk. Um, so they've made no progress on that, and that's really the reason why they face such aggressive questioning at the AGM, because they are not giving shareholders uh, a more formal outlet for expressing a view on climate risk. So they have made progress in the past year, uh, but as I say, because of the pace of change and the pace of action that we need to to take, uh, this kind of slow corporate plodding that's happening uh, is unfortunately just not good enough, even if it does represent progress. Tracy, what about First Rand? You went along there on Thursday. Was it a similar atmosphere? No, completely different, uh, which is expected um, and understandable given the completely different nature of the two businesses. Um, the AGM was uh, much smaller, much quieter, didn't last for very long at all. Um, and we had the two shareholder resolutions that were tabled at first round, the one which the board had endorsed, uh, requiring them to adopt a policy on fossil fuel financing, and that resolution was passed with 99.9% of shareholder votes. And then the other one, which was the resolution which would have required them to assess their exposure to climate-related risks, only got 33% of the votes, so it did not pass. Still a significant chunk of shareholders voting in favour of that resolution, uh, but what it means is that most shareholders, most institutional investors anyway, are deferring to management and saying, okay, if you say you need more time to do this, we're going to give you more time. Hmm. So Roger Jardine, the, the relatively new chairman at First Rand, how did he perform in your opinion? I think First Rand has really demonstrated that it fully grasps these risks uh, and has moved pretty fast to address them. Um, I, we, we differ on the on the pace at which we think that they should be should be responding, but I guess that's that's natural considering uh, the the different sides of the of the sort of story that we both come from. But I thought that um, Roger Jardine, both in his uh, chairman's address or in his chairman's note in the notice of AGM and at the AGM itself, um, was really at great pains to express uh, the bank's complete agreement with the need for all the disclosure that we're asking for. Uh, and again, reiterating that it's it's really a question of timeframes that they disagree on. So a really strong position from first round that it takes the issue seriously, completely understands the need to act but just saying that they need a little bit more time. That is interesting because he's a scientist. That's his background. So I guess he, he agrees with the climate change science. Yes, I, I would hope so. I mean, I think fundamentally, though, as well, you know, banks are banks are in the business of assessing risk, and it's becoming so obvious now uh, the material financial risk that climate change poses. The banks are looking ahead to the future. They're looking at things like trade risks. If South Africa is perceived to be a real climate laggard by trade partners, there's potential for us to be punished in those ways. So, you know, the banks are, are I think, rapidly coming to grips with the fact that this is a big risk and that they need to figure out how they're going to, how they're going to tackle it. So on that side, do you feel there was more progress at first round, perhaps, than at Sassel? Yes, I think, um, I mean, again, very different businesses. Transitioning to a low-carbon economy is a very different uh, set of, uh, uh, you know, uh, is a very different thing for Sassel than it is for First Rand. Uh, but on the other hand, it's, you know, Sassel is the one that's that's got the most urgent problem. So it's unfortunate that we're seeing, unfortunate but predictable, I suppose, that we're seeing much more progressive approach to this issue from from the banks than we are from the carbon-intensive companies.
Tracy Davies is with Just Share, giving us feedback on the two big AGMs that she attended in the past week. Well, we're going to be talking to Johan van Lochrenberg in just a moment, so please stay with us. That's a warm welcome to Johan van Lochrenberg, who uh, is well known as an author, as a uh, a the man who was given a really hard time for the supposed rogue unit at SARS. Um, and I was interesting having a look at your LinkedIn profile, Johan, that you you're actually an LLB. You're a lawyer. How does a lawyer get it get into the whole issue of investigations and then running an investigative unit at SARS? No, that came later in my life. I was actually a policeman for uh, the majority of my 20s. I worked for uh, uh, the organized crime intelligence unit and the, what was known as the Narcotics Bureau. And, yeah, from there I, I entered the world of tax uh, at the tender age of 29. <laughs> And it's been quite a, quite a learning curve, uh, I guess, for you and for the country as a whole, and something that we, we're looking at now. I, I saw a, a story that you published this week, or a comment, rather, on LinkedIn, and I, I really want to just read through those companies because you, you listed them all. Um, KPMG, Trillion, Tongart, VBS, Praza, Bain, Steinhoff, Danell, BAT, Gartner, BAE, Eskom, Tint, Regiments, Oak Bay, and so on. Sahara, Sekunjala, Transnet. My goodness, the list is long. State capture, as you argued, uh, I think quite comprehensively there, affected every single South African. But I don't know how many people are actually joining the dots. I don't know either, but <clears throat> I don't for one moment believe that South Africans are stupid. They're not. Um, but you know we're a very we're a very young growing democracy with you know going through our own growing pains at all different levels um nineteen ninety four presented us with political freedom, but that's about it um, so you know I think most South Africans, the majority by far, are just trying to get through the day you know um and to make sure their kids are at school or that they have a meal to eat or, you know, a place to sleep at night. But I don't think, uh, you know, any sane person can deny what's happened. The point of my post really was that that list, which, by the way, is by no means a complete list, um, it does show a few things. One is that state capture was not limited to one crime family. It was a, it was an across the board, um, uh, free for all. Uh, politics does play a role, but, um, it's not, it's not something that one can generalize and simply point only to one political party. I think every single one in one way or another, um, by way of individuals would be connected to any one of those case studies. Uh, I think the consequences, yeah, when I say every single South African, I, I literally mean that because I mean it on the taxpaying end, which is, you know, at least those people who are capable of buying things when they pay value-added tax pay more today than two years ago or for the last 25 years um, because VAT has gone up uh, for the first time. 
um, there are no tax breaks. In fact, the the, 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 the tax creep is upwards. Um, the tax base is shrinking. Um, I, I just read an article recently about uh, South Africa having lost somewhere around 283,000 small businesses over the last 10 years or so. <laughs> you know, if you just apply that, you know, each company employing one person, that's 283,000 people no longer employed. So it's that, that's the kind of point I was trying to make is that it's indiscriminate. And the final point is that when you look at that list, there's some pretty big names there. You're talking about multinationals. Um, you're talking about brands and company names that for many, many years and, and, and many lifetimes were the supposed epitome of good governance and, you know, the examples of how to make money um, in a democracy and, you know, with their triple bottom line, even caring for the environment. But uh, what we're beginning to see now when we see these lists of, of implicated private companies is that it's one thing to point the finger at government officials and politicians. But uh, in every single instance, there's a private player involved. Um, and these players are not small. They're big. And the money, the money that was lost are obscene numbers. They, I mean, it's just... It's scary to think what you could do with any one of those companies listed, <clears throat> the money that they benefited as a result of this horrible past 10 years, where that money could have gone. Um, and then the last point I'm making is it's, it's by no means over because to try and go and get that money back and hold these people account will mean they have the resources and the means to put up expensive lawyers and drag things out forever and ever. And that will place a, an additional burden on our criminal justice system and, and other parts of the government who's got to fix this. It's an interesting point, the last one, that, uh, and it's something that Peter Hayne and uh, Paula Sullivan have really been hammering on about, is that when you get lawyers who are... Uh, very well paid through what they call uh, the proceeds of crime, and they're they're helping and assisting those who have been miscreants. Uh, it it really just drags things on. But I guess that's on the one side. On the other side, we're seeing some positive developments. Not least that the Minister of Finance, Tito Mboweni, reckons that the kind of work you were doing when you were at South African Revenue Services needs to be reinstated that you need to have those investigative units again. Uh, intrusive was the word that he used. Uh, from, from where you are and, and from the fire that you've been through, do you look at that as a, in a rather cynical way and, and say, well, okay, where were you when I needed you? Or do you feel that he's got a point and he needs support? No, I feel he's got a point and he needs support. Um, <clears throat> from all honest taxpayers because simply put no decent tax authority and customs authority in the world um, does not have intrusive powers uh, they're an absolute essential element of compliance um, to 
um, bringing goods across borders. What is in, that intrusive? Uh, what What does he mean by What do you mean by that? Well, I suppose that that's really the debate, isn't it? And I, I I have a feeling that that debate, to an extent, in in the South African context, is very closely linked to the so-called rogue unit propaganda, um, because the the detractors of uh, the revenue service and those who the proponents of this rogue unit uh, nonsense would have the world believe that that a, a small unit went around breaking into people's homes and stealing their mail and planting bugs under their desks and uh, secretly listening to their phone calls. I mean, there's that kind of intrusive, which is which is something that. Um, you know, the law enforcement agencies proper and the intelligence agencies do. SART has never done it, um, and that unit has never done that. Uh, but in, 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 from a legal perspective and, and, and from a tax and customs perspective, what intrusive really means is the following. It, it refers to the powers that are given to these authorities in order to enforce their laws. And tax laws and customs laws are what what clever people call coercive in nature. In other words, they're based upon the premise that says at some point a person or a business entity may become eligible to fall into the tax net, uh, whether you import for commercial purposes or export or whether you earn enough income or whatever the case might be. And you are then obliged to go and put up your hand at the revenue service and register. Once you're in that net and registered, you then required in law to make certain submissions, either based on certain transactions in the case of imports or manufacturing and so on, or if you're a provisional taxpayer every six months for value-added tax every month or possibly every two months, uh, if you're a normal salaried employer employee annually, by way of example. And in a perfect world, if everybody were honest people and they all complied and paid their taxes as they should have and submitted what they should have, you would not require any ability or means to um, to enforce the law. But as we know, that's not the case. There's a huge tax gap. Um, the last estimate I saw was something like $30 billion per year. Since uh, 2015 onwards, South Africa has been under-collecting Billions of tax. I think the total since 2015 to date is somewhere around 140 billion um, over three or four years, um, which which is a massive gap um, that government has to fill by way of borrowing or doing without, mm. and that affects you know um, services. It affects social grants. It, it affects everything. But you it affects the, the surely, daily lives. Surely that means there must be some upside. If you want to try and look at it from a positive perspective, the way we were going, clearly, we were falling off a cliff. Uh, 140 billion rand in tax that hasn't been collected uh, really gives you an indication that, that the country was in huge trouble. But are you able, for people like you who've, who've got the expertise, have you been called on? Is there a Tuma Mina from, from uh, um, the union buildings to say, come and help us, Mr. von Lochrenberg. Uh, we need to collect <laughs> this, this, this money and, and we need your, your services. No, look, let me, let me dispossess anybody who might be contemplating making such a call to me that uh, unfortunately I, I, 
Uh, my priorities in life uh, have changed. I now have a little daughter. She's just one year old. Um, and, and frankly, the trauma has just been too much. Um, I'll help. By all means, I'll go and sit and have coffee if, if, if people want me to sit with them for a day and share my views and experiences and thoughts on matters. But uh, beyond that, I, I won't. But I know a lot of people who left the institution will go back if called upon. Coming back to the, the point the minister made about intrusive, so what it really means is because the, the tax system is, is coercive, it then requires the tax system to reciprocate with the capability of digging for information, digging for an understanding of where people are not complying. And, you know, that's half the story because once they must present a credible threat of discovery to people who fail to comply. And, and, and that's about information collection. It's about speaking to people. It's about looking at data. It's about comparing data and so forth. And once you identify those people, there must be a further credible threat of negative consequences if you don't comply. Now, if anybody in this country feels that our Revenue and Customs Authority should not have that ability, then they must be prepared to subsidize every single tax evader in the country. And I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think that's the way to go. It will put the revenue service back into the dark ages. There's not a revenue and customs authority in the, in the world that does not have that. In fact, mm. I mean, there's a continuum of this from where tax evasion in China, you know, is, can lead to the death penalty to tax inspectors in Russia that are paramilitary trained, um, masked, you know, highly weaponized, um, almost soldiers to the sort of IRS model, to the sort of Scandinavian models that's very intelligence-based and so on. I think the only people who, who would object to what the minister said would be people who cannot afford to and do not want a strong and effective revenue service. Johan van Lockerenberg, the author of uh, the book on the rogue or the alleged rogue unit and the man right in the middle of all of that. Pity that he has been through too much to go back and support, but I'm sure there's somebody listening in Pretoria to this thinking, mm, at least let's, let's get some insights from him. Uh, fascinating to see that he fully supports what Tito Mboweni had to say. Well, we're going to be talking to Duncan Artis from Alan Gray next. Stay with us. Well, it's uh, a warm welcome to Duncan Artis, uh, who is a director at Alan Gray and uh, a man that I like to get on the program from time to time. Duncan, good to have you on the show. We haven't spoken since the, uh, the, the passing of Alan William Buchanan Gray. I see you guys have got him on the homepage at, at Alan Gray, the, the, the founder of your company, the company after whom it's named. Did you have much to do with, with Alan Gray himself? Um. Uh, Alan actually interviewed me for my job because <laughs> shows how long I've been here. Um, uh, so Alan used to spend sort of around just under a month in, in Cape Town every year. Uh, he used to have a, a flat in Clifton and then probably for the first five or six years when I was at Alan Gray, he, he was here once a, a year and then after that he, he really just focused on the, on the, found, on the foundation. Um, but 
being actually involved on the investment in Alan Gray. I mean, Alan was never really involved at all um, since, I've been at the, since I've been at the company. I think he stopped managing uh, some of the money at Orbis in sort of, I think, 2012-ish, around about there. He still managed a part of the Japan fund, and I think the the emerging market fund as well. But this is so interesting that, that he interviewed you because one of the points that I picked up from Alan Gray, and in fact from Investec as well, was the process that you had, uh, which was very rigorous, of bringing people into the company. In other words, you didn't just arrive at your desk one day and find the guy who's sitting opposite you had arrived. There was always a, a lengthy process. And in fact, when I started MoneyWeb, every single person in our company, because of what you guys did, used to interview all the prospective employees. So it was quite a long process before getting people on board. And, and that was something, presumably, that, that he instilled. Um, yes, I mean, interestingly enough, if you think my second round interview on the day was uh, with Simon, Stephen, <laughs> Alan, Ari, Jack Mitchell, so it was quite a long day, wow. um, quite a rigorous <laughs> process. And, and I think, you know, what, what we've sort of installed in, in the business was not only a rigorous sort of recruitment process, because obviously we're people business. Um, and I think it, it was the tougher, but really started later when at one stage, you know, we only really kept one or two out of, out of every five people who started in the investment team. So it's definitely a tough task to make it all the way to the top. And, you know, most of the things that we obviously try and prove over the years, um, our recruitment process, but most of the sort of values and, and ethos and the processes were, were put in place by Alan, uh, you know, well over four decades ago. And you talk a lot about long term. Um, I was again looking at your website, which explains how well you've done uh, going back to 1998. But I met with Magnus Haystack last week, and I know you guys have crossed swords, but he was saying Alan Gray's performance has been pathetic in the recent, in recent times. And he was, uh, n well, uh, belie he, he believes that you guys have lost the plot. Now, I'm sure you've heard this before. Oh, I've heard that many times in my <laughs> life before, particularly from Magnus Haystack. I think he said the uh, whole of Orbis was going to blow up because they had a position in Japan and there was an earthquake, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something you, you have to take if you're managing uh, public money. You know, if you, uh, as I say, the only person who knows everyone's true investment track record is SARS because that's when willing, people are willing to declare their losses. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if we look back over the last 18 months, it's been a tough 18 months for, for Orbis. That's pretty similar for most value managers that I follow uh, around the world. Uh, the only way you could have really done well over the last sort of two years is by earning those big U.S. tech stocks and, and a couple of consumer staples and, and maybe one or two Asian technology stocks. So this would always have had around, around nine occasions where, where they've underperformed. And, you know, this is close to the, the biggest period of underperformance. And then locally, um, you know, we, the performance has been fine up until around six months ago, and that's mainly because of, of Sassel. So Sassel, as you would be aware, was our second biggest share. And when your second biggest share halves, you know, that does affect performance in the short term, and it tends to drag down some of the, the numbers. Well, reading your report on the unit trust, Sassel alone contributed minus 4% to the fund performance in the past year. That's a, a, a massive hit. How are you reading it now? Um, so, when we look at Sassel, um, you know, we sold roughly a third of the, the position, so at, at, in the higher levels, um, so we roughly got two-thirds of, of, of the original investment in there, and I guess what you've got to do is you've got to back and say, well, what do we think the, the value is, is today? Um, we know what Sassel earned as a business, we've got a long history there, and, you know, it earned around 50 rand a share in, in today's money. 
Um, and because we use a low oil price, you know, we think the business can generate around 40 rand of earnings. This is pre-Lake uh, Charles. Okay, so, you know, Sussel's roughly trading on seven. This is called just under seven times. We know what it has earned in the past. Obviously, they have to prove in the ramp up and sort of the running of Lake Charles that people want proof that it's actually working and running now. I think we mustn't forget they've invested 300 rand per Sassel share into Lake Charles, and the share price is only 262 rand. Um, now, what that has left you with, of course, is a lot of debt. So it's around 120 billion rand of, of debt, if I remember correctly. Um, so what we need now is Lake Charles to, to start producing that, that cash flow. And in our view, Lake Charles is not worth zero. Um, so, you know, they're still sticking to their billion-dollar EBITDA targets, I think, in 2022. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. But it's, it's going to be tough in the short term. Um, but with these commodity companies, uh, like things can change very quickly. If you think about Impala, but a short 18 months ago, Impala was 15 rand a share. They would have sold the lease for, for zero and sitting with a lot of debt on the balance sheet. Now the share price is 115 and they're making acquisitions offshore. That's simply because the, the price of palladium and, and rhodium went up significantly. So if for some reason oil goes to 100 for a few months, you know, then obviously Sassel can pay down its debt much faster than, than people have in their, their model. So, yeah, it was a big disappointment and clearly the company's worth less than we thought it was before. But is it worth investing in now? Yeah, well, it's still our fourth biggest share. So, you, so you, you, are you buying more, though? Is it, that's um, well, we, we have limits in, in the portfolios. Um, you know, obviously, when you, when you look at a share, it's not just the attractiveness of, of the share. It's also, you know, we also have a risk rating at Allen Gray where we say how much of the fund can be exposed to any one individual share. Um, and obviously, with Sassel's you know, increased debt levels, you know, we've limited the, the position size. So we, we wouldn't be buying any more demand. You mentioned Impala. That's uh, yeah. nice to have been in at 15 Rand. Uh, and I notice, uh, again, from your report that you, you've sold out now. Um, we still have. So Impala was our, our best contributor to our performance over the last 12 months. We still, our clients still own around 4% of the, of the business. It's just not as big a share um, as it was in the, in the past. So all, all those shares have done really well. We think um, something like Northern was 35 Rand. It's well over 100 Rand as, as well. Um, and so with the strong palladium and, and erodium prices, um, you know, the profits have, have gone up quite substantially. So it's amazing how quickly things can change um, in, a, in a commodity sector. I remember when Anglo-American was 50 rand, if the coal price hadn't gone and spiked for those six months, Anglo-American itself would have probably had to have a massive rights issue in, in 2016 at the bottom. So these, these things can change quickly. And, you know, we, we don't try to predict the oil price. We have some kind of long-term view on what we think oil is, and that's what we use to, to value Sassel. Duncan, you have a big stake in Nasper's as well. Uh, what do you make of, well, first of all, why Nasper's are not process? And then secondly, because there is a connection, the hostile takeover bid that process is doing in the UK. Yes. Um, so why Nasper's instead of process? So we do still have a little bit of process, but most of the investment would be in Nasper's, and that's simply because uh, the discount is, is bigger in, in Nasper's. So on our numbers, you know, the, the discount is still bigger than sort of 40% on, on the combined thing. So I guess for shareholders, the one disappointing thing is I can't remember how much my staff spent on advisors. I think it was north of a billion rand, and the discount's back to where it was before before they listed process in, in Amsterdam. Um, so, you know, we still think that there's quite a big margin of safety over there. Um, you know, we're still working through our, our thoughts on the proposed Just Eat transaction. I mean, to put in perspective, you know, they're paying old mutuals only a 100 billion rand market cap and it's been around for 160 years and they're paying a similar amount for 
a computer system and uh, basically agreements with restaurants. So we've, we've done a lot of work on, on food delivery globally because um, Delivery Hero is, is listed obviously in Europe. Um, there's a Chinese food delivery company. There's Grubhub in America. So, you know, there are some other things you can look at, but um, I don't think the market's massively enthusiastic about it at the moment. And it'll be interesting to see if they raise the price again, what will happen to, to Nuspass's sort of the discount that it trades at. Duncan, one of the shareholders in uh, the competing takeaway.com, that is the, the competing bidder for this London company NicePass wants to buy, is accusing NicePass of manipulating its share price. Now, its, its associate company, Delivery Hero, has got a big chunk of shares in this, this uh, Dutch company. Um, does that worry you? Does it bother you that, that there might be funny games uh, or fun games being going on? Um, so, I mean, I don't know anything more than, than people who've read the um, announcements by the companies. What it sounds like is, I mean, Nuspass obviously owned the stake in Delivery Hero, and Delivery Hero as a business took a decision without Nuspass's influence to to sell some of the, the Just Eat shares. I mean, those shares have gone up significantly since, um, since sorry, takeaway shares, since, uh, since Delivery Hero got its stake in the business. So from what we can see on the outside, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong. Uh, with it. And, you know, the sort of legal and regulatory environment in the UK, etc., are, are very strict. So I'm sure if there was something wrong, it, it would have come out by now. Mm. And the decision by Investec now to finally split off its asset management company, this is something that, that an area you know very well. Investec also quite a big stock that you have in your portfolio. Uh, and if you, once it's done, once the unbundling of 91 and Investec's done, which of the two are, are going to be the most appealing to you as a long-term investment? Well, obviously, it would depend on how the price splits. We, we don't know yet. Obviously, everyone values the asset management business separately from the banking business, but you don't know, and uh, NASPAS process is a good example. You don't know until the actual splitting of the company happens on the day what valuations are, are people going to put on it. I would expect the asset management business to trade on a higher PE multiple than the banking business. Um, the asset management, industry, uh, asset management part of Investex had a much better track record than the bank. And the real thing that, that drags down Investex valuation is, is obviously the bank in, in the UK. Um, very, very poor returns on, on capital. Um, and that's what we're hoping will change in Investec going forward. You know, it sounds like they're making all the right noises, particularly in the bank, that are much uh, greater focus on, on return on capital. So if you have to ask me which of the two businesses do I like more, I, I like the asset management business more than the bank, but let's see, you know, where the two trade at. Um, I think it's in March uh, next year. And I, I, just to close off with, the, the big story in your business is to judge how well companies are allocating capital. Now, we had a conversation earlier with Chris Logan about Tongart, which he's been following very closely. It would have attracted uh, value investors for sure, given the way that the share price has fallen over the period. Was it, did it attract you? And, and if so, or even if not, what did you make of what came out on Friday from the PwC report? Um, yes, I mean, our clients, we do have a small, well, and obviously as a percentage of fund, it's very small. I think our clients are in around 5% of, of Tongarts. And I think, as you say, if you're a contrarian sort of value investor, you have to, you can accept, well, we never want to pick a loser. You know, you're going to have a few of these in your career if you're looking to buy things that are, are down and out. And it'll be interesting to to see, I think the results come out on the 10th of December, then we'll have a better view, but it's typical um, in property type companies, you know, that the cash flow is very different from the accounting 
earnings. And if you have a look at uh, Tongart's cash flow statement versus its income statement over the last 10 years, um, they earn substantially less cash flow than they showed accounting profit on their on their income statement. So that is the one thing. And then the second thing, of course, is that you know the sugar business was was pretty poor for for a while. So they were taking profits, and we we thought overcapitalizing the, the the sugar business. So yeah, as I said, mentioned, I think the results come out next week. Then we'll have a actual numbers that that we can see. The one thing that was heartening, I think the announcement said there was no need. Um, it sounded more like it was just moving profits around as opposed to a huge overstatement of, of profits. But, but as I said, we'll only know on the, the next week. But the decision by Tongot Hewlett's board to report the executives, including the CEO, to the National Prosecuting Authority and to the South African Police Services, sounds like there's something pretty sinister going on. Um, yes, well, I mean, if you manipulate profits, <laughs> you should be reporting. I think what's What's important to my mind is it's good to see boards um, holding people accountable for wrong decisions. You know, often it's easier just to sort of, uh, you know, avoid uh, conflict or, or not make a large public spectacle about it. But you know, it looks like the board's doing the, the correct thing in this in this case. And I think it's very important to remember that, you know, often well, the CEOs are, are paid and they have incentives and they have bonuses that are based on achieving certain financial targets. And if you manipulated your profit to get there, that's clearly something that, that's wrong and, and should be prosecuted. Duncan Artis, the director of Alan Gray, bringing us up to date on well, what's going on at South Africa's favorite asset management company. A little earlier today, I spoke with Azar Jameen about the International Monetary Fund visit to South Africa. It's fascinating stuff. Let's take a listen. Well, hello to Azar Jameen from uh, the Chief Economist of Econometrics. Azar, last week, in fact on Friday, the Treasury issued a statement to say that the International Monetary Fund team had visited South Africa from the 6th to the 21st of November and come to some interesting conclusions. But just, just by way of background, why would the International Monetary Fund have to send a team to South Africa in the first place? Uh, South Africa is a member of the International Monetary Fund and it is uh, in the course of the way in which the IMF works that they do uh, uh, send an annual or biannual delegation to a country to actually uh, examine everything and to speak to the relevant uh, big important players uh, to assess what the situation is like. It's quite uh, a long journey, though, quite a long visit from the 6th. I mean, it's nearly, what, two weeks that they spent in the country. Well, You've got to realize that there are specialists who actually concentrate on particular areas of the world and uh, who would necessarily, if they wanted to get a detailed uh, impression of how the economy of a country was doing, would spend up to a week in the country. I don't think this is particularly unusual. Mm. So they do it twice a year. They come here for surveillance, as they call it. Uh, surveillance of what? Surveillance of uh, just how well the country is managing its finances in such a way as to uh, determine the extent to which uh, it, the IMF, might indeed in the longer term be called upon to actually assist the country. You've got to realize that each IMF member in turn actually re uh, pays into the IMF, and this is how the IMF builds up uh, the size of it, its funds. So 
It wants to make quite sure that its members are actually running their countries appropriately. And it's, um, it's in this regard that uh, obviously the IMF would probably have raised some uh, eyebrows. Well, I don't know that it would have come as a complete surprise at the deterioration uh, that has taken place in South, Af- in South Africa's fiscal situation. So, so from their perspective, from the Washington uh, institution's perspective, would they now be coming to look at South Africa uh, thinking we might have to lend these guys money in future? Well, the, this is why, what they're probably examining uh, to see whether they may in fact have to do it and if they do do it, what kind of uh, uh, conditions would they impose on granting South Africa such loans in the longer term? But the, uh, I don't think we're there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think the fiscal situation has deteriorated enough. But if we carry on the way it uh, was indicated in the medium-term budget policy statement, then we may be heading that way. All right. So the guys from the IMF were here. They've got a big bank account if South Africa gets into trouble, which South Africa can draw from. But then there will be conditions attached. Always better, of course, not to have to borrow in the first place, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, and unfortunately, one can imagine what those conditions attached would be like, and they would not be particularly popular with many members of the ruling tripartite alliance, but they would then have very little option but to accede to those conditions. So they spoke about three big challenges, no surprises there. The first one, weak economic growth in South Africa. Secondly, uh, a deteriorating fiscal, or in other words, tax situation. Taxes are lower than uh, than what's being spent. And the third one is problems at state-owned enterprises. The solutions to all of this, I think, is 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 more important. Azar, did you get much um, comfort from what the IMF is recommending that South Africa does? I think they are trying to put some pressure on the government <coughs> to actually. Uh, perform and to start implementing many of the strategic uh, reforms that the government itself has actually put forward, but which are not being allowed to be implemented because of opposition from within the ruling tripartite alliance. And uh, I think uh, by putting additional pressure uh, on the government, apparently, in the same way as the ratings agencies are putting pressure uh, or threatening clearly to downgrade our credit rating, the hope is that uh, some sense will prevail within the ruling party. But if the ruling party does not act to rectify the structural weaknesses of the economy, then eventually they may find themselves in a situation where they are forced to act because otherwise there will be no money and uh, uh, you know, service delivery will suffer even more than it is doing at the moment. So when the IMF says things like South Africa must create an environment conducive to private sector investment and the, the second point that it needs a decisive approach towards implementing structural reforms. What does it mean by that? What practically is it telling the Ramaphosa administration to do? Well, there are a number of areas. Firstly, uh, it's telling Ramaphosa, you better do something to improve growth itself. And that involves a whole host of things, which the government itself has outlined in the Treasury Strategy document two months ago, improve your educational outcomes, 
try and become more productive, uh, uh, deregulate the economy to try and spur small business activity, make it easier to finance small business activity and pay them properly, embark upon decent infrastructural investment, which you haven't been doing for the last few years because you've been spending all your money financing the remuneration of a burgeoning public service. And that is the second aspect that the uh, IMF would be basically calling on the government to do is to somehow rein in the enormous growth in public service, which has far exceeded the growth in remuneration uh, that we've seen in the private sector. And thirdly, the government would need to address the incompetence and inefficiencies and losses being incurred by state-owned enterprises. Uh, and, of course, indirectly in all of this, try and do something to beat off corruption. So it's pretty well known... There are lots of people calling for this. The fact that the IMF is calling for it now, the ratings agencies are calling for it now, is that enough to overcome political resistance? Uh, Alec, you must tell me whether uh, political uh, resistance is an all-embracing and dominant factor, uh, because uh, if it is, then South Africa is in deep trouble. Uh, if somehow common sense can prevail and Ramaphosa can persuade his uh, cabinet colleagues of the need to actually abide by what Treasury has been suggesting, then I do think we have a, a chance. But to do that does require some firm hand, and especially in relation to uh, interests such as those of the trade unions who are basically arguing that why should they now be paying the penalty for all the excesses and losses incurred uh, in the past decade by a corrupt government. Uh, I guess they got a point there. But just to close off with us, in a developing country, the definition is where politics uh, trumps economics. Are we <laughs> going to be doing the normal development country um, misstep here by allowing politics to... Uh, usurp the uh, sensible economic policies or, or might someone like Ramaphosa be able to negotiate his way into a different outcome? I think the disappointment over the past two years since Ramaphosa became president is the failure of uh, his uh, regime to actually uh, take uh, power and over the political interests that uh, also have an interest in the perpetuation of corrupt activities. Uh, one can only hope that uh, the powers that be turn a little faster in uh, the next year to try and restore some of the confidence that people originally had that Ramaphosa and his uh, team would actually win over the um, interests of the country uh, in relation to politicians who are preventing them from doing so.